0: To another episode of Romans. But before we begin, let's kick off with a video clip and we'll be right back. Now Aslan. I'm a little disappointed in you. Did you honestly think by all this that you could save the human traitor? You are giving me your life and saving no one. (laughs) So much for love. So now what? If we indeed are God's covenant people, i.e. justified by faith and faithfulness in Jesus, what does life look like for each of us? How can we tell? Well, guess what? That's exactly how Paul begins in today's chapter. We will be exploring chapter 8. Today, I want to propose to you, it's a life that is reframed by the Spirit. Life that is different, drastic, unique, weird and odd, especially in the eyes of the world and those around us. Our reframe lives are also life-giving and sensitive to the suffering that goes around us. Not only human suffering, but also the suffering that creation experiences. A reframe life cultivated, empowered, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it look like to have a life that is reframed by the Holy Spirit? Well, let's begin. Verse 1 in chapter 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law will be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. So now what? Well, there is no condemnation. That's what. What was this condemnation? The condemnation that was described in chapters 5 to 7. You see, as I mentioned before over and over again about Romans, Paul tends to go in circles and repeats himself and revisit topics from the previous chapters. Last time, if you were with us uh, when I was going through chapter 7, I used the analogy of a fish that decided to jump out of the water and onto dry land because the fish doubted that the water was for its good. It said, wait, there's gotta be more than just the ocean. But it soon realized that it was in trouble once it was on land. Ultimate death was looming, and no matter how hard this fish tried to get back into the ocean, it couldn't. And what was worse, he sees, or he or she sees the ocean. And the ocean continually reminds the fish of its stupid decision. A constant reminder of what the fish missed out, and a constant reminder that it can't get back because the fish was not built for land. So it can't crawl back into the ocean. The ocean, to use Paul's terms, was condemning the fish. And the fish was left hopeless and helpless as its doom was imminent. The law of Moses, the Torah, is like the ocean in this analogy. The law's intent was to provide life. It provided the environment where we can flourish and be right with God. The law reflected God's character and personality, His holy character and personality. But as we discussed in chapter 7, ever since humanity decided to jump out of the ocean You and I consistently fell short of reaching the ocean because somehow the sin in us convinced us that land was better and the law was God's selfish way of holding us back, just like Adam and Eve did right from the beginning. However, we realized that by jumping out and remaining on land, it wasn't actually a good decision. So what do we do? We try to get back just like the Jews, trying to follow the law, trying their best to keep its law, the laws and requirements. But just like the Jews, you and I continue to fail. Ultimate death, decay and judgment, eradication kept looming. The cloud of death kept on covering our heads, and there was no hope. The good law that was to give life condemned us by reminding us of the constant decay and imminent judgment that we will one day face and receive our punishment, which is ultimate death. Thank God for Jesus, as Paul says in the end of chapter 7. Jesus, embodied as a human representative, became, if you continue with the analogy of the fish, he became the fish that brought forward the imminent death that we all were going to expect, so that this death was fulfilled. And not only that, He was raised to life so that he became the new fish back in the ocean as if the original fish didn't exist. And the amazing part, we who have pistuo the faith and faithfulness in Jesus are also united with him and belong to God. Sure, the looming judgment will come. But just like Jesus, when we die, we too will be back in the ocean with new bodies Like as if we never left the ocean in the first place. How is this possible? Paul says right at the end of this passage, in which chapter 8 will expand on today, is this. It is possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The same Spirit who indwelled in Jesus, who empowered Him to trust and obey God, who helped and enabled Him and empowered Him to fulfill the law's requirements, who enabled Jesus to be obedient to death on the cross, and the same Spirit who raised Him to life. This Holy Spirit is in us, each of us who have bestowal in Jesus. We are God's chosen people because of the Holy Spirit. All right. You might be wondering then, and you might be asking, who is this Holy Spirit? Well, Paul knew you were going to ask, so let's move on to verse 5. Verse 5, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Alright, who is this Holy Spirit who controls us and gives us life and made us right with God? Let me draw your attention to the blue-bolded phrases up here. Spirit of God living in you. Christ lives within you. Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And lastly, same Spirit living within you. If you look at Paul's logic here, the A equals B type of thing, the Holy Spirit equals the Spirit of God. And not only that, also equals to Jesus Christ. Folks, let that sink in for all of us. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the Father. The Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, the Son. Mind-blowing, right? When we have pastuo in Jesus, the faith and faithfulness in Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters into us, which is the same as saying Jesus Christ entering into us, which is the same as saying God the Father entering into us. No wonder we now belong to God. No wonder we can now trust and obey God. We have the ability to trust and obey God beyond following the law because the Spirit of God, who is also Jesus, who is also the Father, is in control of us and embodies us. The law that, that reflected God's character and holiness is now in us. But now, instead of trying to follow it by ourselves with our, within our own capacities, within our own, and some translations would say, within our own flesh, i.e. sinful nature, we have something completely way better, not, just, not by our own utility and capacity, We have God in us who will enable us to fulfill the law's requirements. See, he's in us. God is in control. Jesus is in control, transforming us to be like him. See, that's why Paul quoted Ezekiel. And Ezekiel saying in chapter 36, verse 27, it says this. God says this to Ezekiel and promised this in Ezekiel. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. God says I to Ezekiel and promised to Ezekiel that God will place his spirit in humanity, in all of his chosen people, his spirit, so that we, instead of following rules and things on a written form and trying to do it ourselves, he'll do it for us because he's in the of us. See, we are being consumed by the Holy Spirit while at the same time, Having our lives reframed by the Spirit to be like Jesus. To finally be that fish that was originally in the ocean. This should make you and I say, wow, amen to this. This is how we are united in Jesus and belong to God. It's because of the Holy Spirit in us. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit who enabled Jesus to trust and obey God, the same Spirit that enabled him to go through suffering and death. This Spirit. Who is God, who is Jesus, is now in us. Therefore, what are we supposed to do in response? We need to give him full control. If we don't, we will continue to be this fish on the land, looking at the ocean, and just be helpless and hopeless. Because we know we did something wrong. We know we can't get back to the ocean on our, by ourselves. And we know that imminent death and doom is coming. That's pretty sad. However, thank God. Thank Jesus for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, for, thank you, God, for his work on the cross for us so that we are able to be united with Jesus, the new fish who happens to have never made the wrong decision in the first place to be back in the ocean. Let's continue. Verse 12. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him. Abba, Father. Now, in Hebrew, that actually means Daddy. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. FOMO. The fear of missing out. You see, I think today... Paul would say that that's the greatest burden that many of us face today. And guess what? That's the sinful nature of this world. FOMO tries to convince us that God's promises are nothing compared to what you're missing out if you obeyed God. Obey God? Look at what you're missing out, dude. Yet FOMO burdens us and embroils us to be envious of our neighbors, compare ourselves to our friends, tempts us to compare ourselves with our coworkers. In fact, it forces us to hoard money, be greedy, and not, not allow ourselves to be generous to give to the poor. And in fact, what's worse, it makes us forget who we truly are. The more we're concerned about FOMO, the less we remember who we are, i.e. God's children. That's why if we allow FOMO, the sinful nature, to dictate our lives and continually allow FOMO to control us, we will definitely die. And what's worse, FOMO continues to make us fearful of uncertainty and insecurity. Why did the fish jump out of the water? Because of FOMO. It feared that it was missing out on something, thinking that God is preventing it from having and having stuff. And because FOMO controlled the fish, it was destined to die. But not so if we allow the Holy Spirit to control us. The Holy Spirit does not burden us with fear, insecurity, but enables us to be God's children. Why? Remember, the Holy Spirit is also Jesus, who is who? The Son of God. And because Jesus is in us, we too are children who call on God as our Abba Father, the most intimate father-child relationship. And God is our good good father, our good father who provides for everything that we need and require. He knows what's best for us. And therefore there should be no fear, no anxiety, no insecurities, no need of FOMO because God is our good father. You are God's child. You will be heirs of God's glory. Sure. Like Jesus, we will all experience suffering at the present. FOMO will always rear its ugly head and persecute us and judge us and say that we are stupid in following God. But Jesus went through it too, and the Holy Spirit enabled him to trust and obey God in light of his suffering right to the cross, right through to his glorification. So, suffering and glorification then, what is it then? How do we go through it? Well, Paul continues discussing suffering and glory right now in verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Paul references back to Genesis. What happened to creation when humanity turned away from God? See, creation was subjected to death and decay just like humanity. Humanity was to take care of creation, rule over creation, and be good caretakers of it. Stewards, you could say. Or even, you can even go further, the husband of creation. Creation was like humanity's wife or spouse. Whatever happens to humanity happens to creation. So when humanity turned against God and jumped ship, not only was death imminent for humanity, death and decay, it was imminent for creation as well. Creation, therefore, is eagerly waiting for God's true children, His chosen people, to rule over creation again and make things new. See, folks, that's what glory means. That's what glory that will be shown to us means. God's children reestablishing their God-given rules over creation, renewing creation without any death or decay, and what's best, Everything is in God's presence. That's the hope we all are eagerly waiting for as his children. We know where we are going. We know what's currently happening in us. And we also know why things are in chaos around us. And that's why we have this yearning, this hoping, this eagerness for the glory to come. It moves us to pray for the world and creation, pray for Jesus to come again, to be on this throne. Pray with his, this heart of yearning, i.e. groaning. When we hear about shootings, gang violence, racism, mass shootings, people dying due to political unrest, COVID, and disasters such as typhoons and volcanoes, what should we do as Christians, as God's chosen people? How should a reframe life look like in light of this suffering? Prayer. This reframe life is a life of prayer. We pray, we groan, and we pray in eager expectation for God's glory to come. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come soon to redeem this world, to reveal who your your children are so that they can rightfully be placed rulership over this land once again, over this world once again, to make things new. Allow your glory to come to your children. That's what we pray for. And we pray and yearn for creation, for humanity, for our friends and family and neighbors to also know and come to love and believe in Jesus so that they too can be God's chosen people as well, to experience and share this. So it's not like we want to, uh, it's not like an attitude of avoiding pain and suffering. No. We're not people that want to stay away from pain and suffering. We are people of prayer who will shoulder the responsibility of praying in light of suffering, in the midst of suffering. We pray with the people who are suffering. We pray with creation that is suffering. We pray with them, grieve with them, mourn with them, groan with them, and we guide them through expectation of hope, the hope of Jesus coming soon to take his place and allow the children of God to be revealed so that the entire world can be redeemed and made new. That's why Paul says this to begin our next segment in verse 26. In the same way too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but that same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, and the searcher of our hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking because the Spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, glorified. And he writes this about this passage in particular, especially the word searcher. The word searcher comes from a root which suggests someone lighting a torch and going slowly around a large dark room full of all sorts of things, looking for something in particular, or perhaps he is searching in the dark by listening. What is he wanting, wanting to find and what happens when he finds it? No doubt, God, in searching the dark spaces of our hearts, comes across all sorts of things which we would just as soon remain hidden. But the thing he is wanting to find above all else, and which according to Paul, he ought to find in all Christians, is the sound of the Spirit's groaning. There is a challenge out there for every church and every Christian to be willing to shoulder the task of prayer of this kind, prayer in which we are caught up in a loving, groaning, redeeming dialogue between the Father and the Spirit. Remember our question about what a reframed life in the Spirit looks like? It's a life of prayer, a life of prayer willing to shoulder and share in the suffering of others. God searches our hearts and wants to see if His Spirit of deep love and concern for the world around us is indeed in your heart and in mine god loves us we ought to love our fellow human beings as well god came to this world in jesus to share in our sufferings take part in our sufferings experience what we've experienced and also experience to the extent of the consequences of our sufferings to provide redemption so should we since jesus is in us Scripture says that Jesus is at the right hand of God, praying for us and the world. Paul will actually say this as well in the later passage that we'll be going into. Well, if he is in us, we too should be doing the same. Christians are not to avoid or ignore suffering. We are to share in the suffering, mourn with those who mourn, and give the spirit control of our prayers with articulate words and non articulate ones of groaning. We give the spirit full control and allow him to work in our lives to give hope to those who are those fishes stuck on the land. We know this suffering is brutal, but we also know that this suffering will end. That's the hope that we have in each of us. All things will be made new, or what Paul would say, all things will be good. This is completely contrary to a world that wants to avoid sharing in other people's suffering. They would say, why burden yourself with these people? Why burden yourself with suffering? Think of positive thoughts. Think positively. Don't surround yourself with negative people. We respond the way Jesus would respond. We would respond saying, no, we will share in their suffering through prayer, through deeds, And allow the Holy Spirit to control us on how we can provide hope for humanity who are suffering around us. Why? Because Jesus is in us. We can help it. We have to do it. Because Jesus is controlling us. Verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. All right, let's keep a track of how many times he says no one. I'll let you count. So number one, no one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, FOMO. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That is something that we should sing a song right after before I even conclude this sermon. Now, Paul comes back full circle. He says, so now what? He says it again. What shall we say about such wonderful things that we just mentioned throughout the whole entire chapter of chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from God's love, i.e. Jesus. Not FOMO, not anyone, nothing. Who dares to accuse us of missing out because we trust and obey God? No one. Who dares to condemn us for remaining faithful to Him? No one. Can they threaten us with persecution? Can they threaten us by starving us to death? Can they threaten us by excommunicating us? Can they threaten us by firing us from our jobs, laying us off? Can they threaten us by ostracizing us? Can they threaten us by discriminating against us? Can they threaten us by preventing us from worshiping together in person? No, nothing can separate us from the love of God. They cannot separate us from our faith and obedience to him because, why? He lives in us. Paul quotes from Psalm 44, uh, in that parenthesis where you see above, where the psalmist said that Israel was being persecuted, you know, led to, as sheep to the slaughter. They were persecuted not because of their disobedience, all right? If you read the psalm, The Israelites were persecuted because of their faith, trust, and obedience to God. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. God's chosen people will rule over this world and bring shalom, bring the flourishing, and bring the peace back into creation. The glory will be shown. There will be no condemnation because God is in us now. There's no separation between us us and God because God is in us now. That's what life looks like reframed. A life of victory, a life of hope, a life of joy, a life of freedom from shame and guilt, a life of free from condemnation, a life that has no fear when evil comes around, a life that's willing to shoulder and share in others' suffering while earnestly praying for God, saving redemption upon them. A life of love, of life that is full and has no fear of FOMO. Oh, wait a minute. Basically, that's a life like Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining me again for another episode of Romans as we went through chapter 8. Hope you enjoyed it. Till next time, have a wonderful week.